the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And Hello, and welcome to another episode of Sake on Air. Uh, for those of you that are tuning into us for the first time, um, this podcast is just about sharing uh, kind of our experiences um, as people working in uh, as professionals in the sake industry. Um, I think a lot of us were kind of hooked by the kind of stories that are out there about sake, and this is an opportunity to share those with you and some insight from Japan that maybe you you can't get hold of um, where you are. And in today's show, we are going to be going on a voyage of discovery and sniffing our way into the aroma of sake. What does sake smell like? And how does it compare to, say, wine or beer or any other alcoholic beverages out there? And I think this is definitely going to be a show to have a glass or two or three or maybe more sake in front of you while you're listening. And perhaps do your own little smelling uh, test as well while you're listening. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, my cast. Uh, my name is uh, Chris. I will be hosting the show uh, for this episode, and I am joined by, on my right-hand side... Rebecca Wilson-Lai. Hey, Rebecca. <laughs> nice to see you again, Chris. Looking like forward to tonight's topic. Likewise. It's very nice to have you on the show. And on my left, I am joined by... Sebastian Lemoyne. Sebastian. Nice to be here. Yeah, we were just doing an event yesterday, weren't we? Yes. Uh, it was a lot of fun to work with you for the first time, I think, actually. Doing That's an right. event together. Mm. Enjoyed yeah. that tremendously. Yeah, likewise. But without further ado, let's dive into uh, this episode's topic, aroma. Where do we start on aroma? Well, first question I want to ask is, is aroma good or not? I would personally say that I think it depends on the person, on their sense of smell. And also preference as well. What do you what do you think, Rebecca? Well, I believe that. I mean, I don't know the exact percentage of it. I'm sure that someone can Wikipedia it and um, find the correct um, answer. But I believe that around about eighty percent of our sense of flavour is actually coming from our sense of smell. So flavour doesn't really happen without aroma. Yeah, that's a I really good that. point. So if we start by explaining basically what we mean when we refer to aroma, first of all, you have taste and you have flavor. And there are two different things, right? And actually, it's interesting because in Japanese, they don't separate them. They just have one word for both, in a sense. But so we were discussing this earlier. And basically, so you both would sum up flavor as being a combination of taste and aroma together, basically. Is that correct? That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So taste is basically things like bitterness and saltiness, sourness, umami, right? The things that you pick up and on your tongue. Sweetness. sweetness as well, of course. And then basically flavor is things like apple, banana, chestnut, cereal-based things, milky things, right? Absolutely. Okay, and a lot of people, when they're actually um, tasting those, those flavors, if they're not used to tasting sake or if they're not used to tasting in general... They might pick those. They might think those are tastes that you pick up on the tongue, because um, most people don't realize that actually flavor is picked up in our olfactory sensors, which are located in our nose. So, okay. So having kind of you know established the difference between taste and flavor, so everyone knows what we're talking about when we talk about aroma in this show. 
Can I just kind of ask uh, both of you how you would sort of sum up sake in your own words? If someone was to ask you, what does what is the aroma of sake? How would you describe that? Gosh, can you describe the spectrum? I mean, the I think there are many misconceptions about sake. Number one, that it tastes the same, right? Everyone thinks it tastes the same. And I guess most people also would assume it smells the same. Um, my first experience of sake pre-Japan were pretty heinous. Um, I thought that sake smelt like cooking sherry. You know, it, that's what it smelt like. Mm. Obviously, I didn't know much about sake and neither did the people that were serving it to me, obviously. But I had a very, very narrow image of what sake's aroma and flavor was. Having come to Japan, having started my sake journey 15 years ago, um, I quickly discovered the wealth and the breadth of flavor and hand in hand, the wealth and the depth of aromas that sake could possess and how those aromas can therefore change with time and maturation, how they can change the same sake in the same bottle the aroma can change based on the temperature that that sake is served at. Um, it can change on the glassware that you enjoy the sake with. Um, it can change whether that bottle has been open for one day or one week. You know, so I discovered this incredible spectrum of, mm. of aroma, which is fascinating and I think it's really underexplored. We talk mm. a lot about flavor with sake, but I we think do. aroma is something which is um, a really, really beautiful aspect of the tasting and enjoyment process of drinking sake. Which aromas in particular sort of um, always get you excited? When you can well, it changes. Yeah. When I first arrived, I was, you know, had my training wheels on mm. and I enjoyed the easy to understand aromas. Mm. The ones that were, you know, peach, melon, yeah. apple, banana. Um, then, as I started to explore more, I under started to understand that those savoury notes were compelling because the savoury notes were the sort of the harbinger of a of a rich, flavourful sake that was going to yeah. come. You know, for me, that the aroma is the promise mm. of what will be delivered in the mouth, and that gets me excited. And I. For a long time, actually, um, I really liked namahine, which is yeah, um, no, I love it, the the off aroma of an yeah. unpasteurized sake. Right. It's got a bacony kind of geranium leaf, a bit of a sort of musty, almost like animal mm. aroma. I don't know why, but it was it it had me every time. My eyes would roll back in my head. It was like catnip for me. I loved it. Um, now I've you know, moved on to another stage, you know, and I think that's the same with the flavors that we appreciate yeah. as well. I, I find that what I'm enjoying in terms of aroma and flavor is, is changing as I change. It changes mm. as the seasons change. It changes with what I'm, eat, with, uh, what I'm eating or how I'm feeling. Yeah. So. What you had the day before? Yeah, what you had oh, the day before. Yeah. yeah, that's F true. Food pairing is definitely key here, isn't it? W one point to um, complement what Rebecca was saying earlier, you were talking about a promise of what the sake will deliver in mm. the mouth. And it's true that in sake, very often, we find a very strong consistency between the aroma that we perceive through the nose, though in the orthonasal way, and the aromas uh, or the flavors that 
we perceive when the sake is on the tongue in the mouth and you don't necessarily have that in other in all alcoholic beverages and that's actually rated very highly in the competitions isn't it so when you actually go you go and you judge sake in the competition which i actually did very recently um the whole all the time it was just talking about just look for the balance between the the aroma and the actual flavors you know as you are aware i'm an iwc judge and actually we judge i would say 95 percent on the nose mm. so we are going through we're going through 1500 sake we're going through a lot of sake so we have to be quick and we have to be precise and you're really reading the nose the nose is going to tell you a lot about what's in the glass you make your first initial thoughts you gather okay this is what i i feel is going to be coming this is what this aroma is i'm picking up these points these points i'm expecting that probably on the mouth and then you confirm in the mouth yeah right if you're picking up a faults or something that might be less than perfect you're also wanting to confirm that in the mouth so the aroma is giving you all of the information the mouth is confirming that information in some cases do you ever find that the aroma kind of throws you off so you you do well exactly to your point of um balance for me i do find it disconcerting when aroma, that the aroma is completely disconnected from the palate. Um, if there isn't this um, collaboration between what is promised on the nose and delivered on the mouth, it's an unusual experience. You feel like, oh, that's not what I was expecting. It's like, it's like going to the movies, maybe, yeah, after watching one of those really, really good trailers, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that can often happen, I would say, more often than not in the high grades, like the Jumai Daiganjo, oh, the Daiganjos, because yeah. they've got, they are produced to have super high tone aromas, yeah. gorgeous, you know, glamorous aromas. And then you, then you, confirm in the mouth and it's hollow empty it's got a bit of a bitter finish it's ah it's not delivering what the promise was but that can actually be rated quite highly in japan so having this like really 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 over the top aroma and then like following it with nothing can sometimes be rated quite highly here it depends what the nothing is if the if the nothing is empty yeah then, then that's not highly no, rated. No. Just clean and kind of simple as opposed clean to... Clean and simple yeah. is fine as it's long fine. as the, on the palate and the secondary aromas are also complementary to that that's, yeah. that simple expression on the palate, then then you could probably get away with it. And generally, I I don't recall a sake that's completely disjointed um, mm. between aroma and palate receiving very high praise. Mm. Um, that's just in this, the competitions that they I've get, They get on. chucked out early on, don't they? You kind of, not chucked out, you kind of, you know, kind of rule them there's out a lot of great sake to choose from yeah so we've been talking a lot about like this kind of first aroma that you you come across and then that kind of gives you an idea of what the sake is going to taste like so in japanese they actually separate the aromas and they have different names for them so the aroma that kind of wafts um out of the glass the first thing that you actually smell is called the uadachi ka in Japanese, and it literally means like the the glass that kind of floats, uh, sorry, the aroma that floats out of the glass. And then you have the aroma that you detect in the mouth, um, which we, we, you know, the flavor basically, um, which in Japanese is called the kochuka or fukumika, um, literally means, again, aroma in the mouth. And then finally you have this kind of, you know, sometimes when you swallow the sake and you get this kind of little return aroma sometimes. Um, they have a word for that as well, which is modorika. So when you actually go and you do a professional tasting here in Japan, they might refer to those um, a little bit. 
Um, we don't have anything like that. Well, we do kind of in English as well, don't we? You have like the mid palate aromas, and well, you would have like the the af the after aroma. Yeah, after aroma. Yeah, and the aroma on the palate. Yeah, I think it's fairly similar. Yeah, yeah. the same in wine. I'm pretty sure. So for those of you listening, who wine people um, might want to yeah. send us a send us a message if yeah. they've got it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so where where do um, most of the aroma? Well, what type of aroma? should we expect to find in sake and so i actually did some research and um uh the first of all the national research institute of brewing give a very simple breakdown of the kind of aromas that you would expect to find uh in sake and they've kind of uh broken it down into eight categories um gonna read them out so you've got apple banana alcohol vinegar soy sauce slash caramel Japanese pickles, uh, there's a type of pickle called takawan, um, with sulfurous flavors, and then rice koji, and finally wood and grass. Um, they do actually have to say provide a much more detailed breakdown in the form of a, a, a flavor wheel, which is not possible to show you, but we'll put up on the uh, website to accompany this podcast. Now, if you, if you actually compare the amount of aromas that you pick up in wine, there are much less aromas for sake than there are for wine. Um, a lot less, actually. And actually, sometimes the uwada chica is yeah. a big question mark when you get the glass close to your nose and you're trying to appreciate mm. the uh, aromas that... Fl- I mean, um, how, what expression do you use? A wafting from wafting. the glass. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with the word. Wafting out of the glass. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I am struggling. <laughs> you know, I have a really... Like I uh, recently developed an analogy for this myself uh, after doing a bit of uh, wine tasting, taking the WSET wine course. I think if you compare with wine, I would say wine speaks quite loudly to you. And with sake, you really need to listen really hard. It speaks in quite a quiet voice. The, 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 fl- the flavors or aromas are very subtle, I would say, compared to wine. But can... that's so Japanese. It's so Japanese that the aroma would be sort of ephemeral sort yeah. of a little bit like sakura that comes for just such a short time and delights us and then then slowly fades away i mean that's in some ways what we're describing isn't it yeah. that's what makes it so charming is that we can't ever quite grasp it yours was, more, <laughs> yours was definitely more poetic than mine. understated yeah. smells <laughs> yes indeed so the, but that's what we're dealing with here for a lot of people i think as rebecca was saying earlier the aroma can kind of just smell the same from sake to sake. Well, that's the misconception. That's the misconception. That was my point. That's the misconception. misconception. People often ask me, how do I drink sake? Number one, my answer is just drink it. And then number two, trust your senses. That's the most important thing. I think when people approach sake, they, they think, oh, I'm not supposed to know what these, what the aromas of sake Mm. are because I don't know anything about sake. You've got a nose. You've got flavor memories and aroma memories. If it smells like your grandmother's perfume, it smells like your grandmother's perfume. If it smells like a banana cake with with raisins, that's what it smells like to you. Yeah. So I do believe that we should also preface what we're saying with, in some ways, when it comes to our senses, there's no right or wrong. Trust yourself. Trust your palate. Trust your your sense of aroma and the memories that you have, and then slowly use that as your 
building block from yeah. which to expand your knowledge and awareness of sake. I, I think that definitely works. But you know, when I first actually started tasting sake or maybe when i go and visit a brewery then they bring out all these different sake and i'd be tasting them and i try and make tasting notes so i could remember what they tasted like you know later and i'd come to the aroma i'd always struggle and perhaps it's because i don't have a very good vocabulary when it comes to aroma uh, i think that's also really important right so i know i am picking up something very familiar i just wouldn't be able to put a word to it and it was really frustrating, actually, because, you know, you're like, how am I going to remember this? I've got to find something. And you end up just writing the same thing. Oh, well, you know, it's fruity. It's well, that's why I encourage people to talk about things that are really familiar to them, things yeah. that are things that are easy to recall. Yeah. For example, it might smell like, I, I mean, I had a sake during IWC, the judging competition, that smelled like the tomatoes that my mum used to bring in from the garden. Mm. And it was a Jumai Daiganjo. There shouldn't have probably been any tomatoes in that round, but it was the tomato stalk yeah. from those warm tomatoes that she brought in from the garden during summer. Yeah. That's That was my note. See, I'm so jealous when I hear that because it just doesn't come to my, you know, I, I think I must be just, there's, there's nothing up there as far as that's concerned. No memories connected to aroma or anything. Well, you can also, this is just another a little bit of a tip yeah. is you can also if you are wanting to bump up your ability to recall aromas start today go to the supermarket go into that's the produce section yeah, pick up a broccoli smell that what does that smell like go and pick up an apple now go and pick up a, a, a melon a peach yeah start smelling everything the flowers that they that they have wrapped up near the door yeah um start smelling your pickles just, your just keep going until they throw you out <laughs> no, you buy the stuff first, hopefully. Yeah, you don't open up the packets, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you just, I think your home is one of the best laboratories to start your yeah. aroma exploration, yeah. especially your kitchen. Yeah. Just start smelling everything. Like um, For me, often I use the um, the expression of, you know when you get um, natural yogurt and it sits in the refrigerator mm. for a while and that layer of water kind of mm. settles mm -hmm. on the top of the yogurt? Oh, yeah. Often... Sake's got that aroma, especially if it's a mm. um, like a Kimoto style or a Yamahai mm. style. It will sometimes have that kind of lactic acid, watery lactic acid yeah. aroma, a little bit powdery as well, a little bit of, um, got a bit of yogurt in it. I describe it as Meiji Borgiria, um yogurt water. <laughs> That's what I describe <laughs> it as. You know, you've got, when you're, when you're talking about sake, you don't have to be a professional, but just as long as it connects to a true aroma memory for you yeah. is really key well, definitely practice helps yeah. practice yeah and and yeah practice and just kind of uh, i think it helps to have a few building blocks though so that you do actually know what you're you're kind of picking up and so i i think what we'll do is we'll go through the type of aromas that you would expect to find in sake and then we'll have a look at the sort of the history of um aroma first of all in modern day sake especially um maybe not so much you know um more traditional uh, sake or sake from you know a bygone age but certainly modern sake and more recent sake you would expect to find um in in the ginjo uh, style sake you would expect to find a kind of um fruity or floral aroma yeah indeed also fruity, usually these days quite in your face yeah can be can't it it's not for everyone um, and also it depends like you were saying earlier it depends on the the overall kind of structure of the sake as well it doesn't suit all types of sake um, but when you come across that sake that has that perfect you know fruity aroma it's just glorious like you know tropical fruits but really restrained not too over the top it really is quite something isn't it the reason that you get 
banana or apple in a sake, despite sake not being made with either apples or bananas, is because it contains something that both apples and bananas contain, and that's something called an ester. And we're going to talk about how those are actually produced uh, later on. That's the simple answer. And where did these esters come from? They come from the yeast, basically. It's the yeast that produces these. Um, I have to say also that esters are not unique to sake, right? You, you also get them in beer and in wine. I think they're more natural in the case of wine. You well, can also get them in wine. All foods. All food, basically. Flavorings yeah. and uh, yeah. uh, come Products. from yeah. esters. Yeah. So, for example, a common um, aroma that I pick up in competition, Jumai Daiginjo, um, and in some like Jumai Ginjos as well, is uh there's candied bananas that you used to oh, get yeah, as yeah, yeah. children mm, and mm. um uh i often pick up that and it, why do i pick up that because the ester is exactly the same yeah and uh, also uh, esters are found in perfume as well um you actually read the bot the back of the bottles of some perfumes that actually list the esters uh on there your always. toilet spray toilet spray as Lots well yeah i'm actually there's a question to you both because i couldn't actually find the answer to this i'm presuming it's probably esters or perhaps esters that haven't been created uh, in in their entirety, kind of like half created esters or whatever, but baked fruit aromas. Where do you think they kind of come from? Is it sort of sake with esters, and then maybe something else? Um, well, what? often when I've experienced particularly a, I would say probably jimai ginjo or a jimai daiginjo, daiginjo ginjo, um, that has got a baked fruit aroma. Then usually, if it is also um, connected with a slightly off-balanced palate, um, I would say that that sake has been exposed to some kind of temperature damage and the beautiful light fruity aromas have possible, possibly gone through accelerated aging. Mm -hmm. um, but that is something that I would probably suspect on the nose mm -hmm. if it was a Junmai Ginjo or a Dai Ginjo, um, big baked fruit aromas could indicate for me, temperature damage, but I would confirm that on the on the palate. Mm. In the case of wine, kind of baked fruit is not always seen as a positive, right? It can be a sign of so, sort of the the wine being past its best, or yeah. Yeah, I, it for me, it's indicative of something is possibly not right. Yeah, and I need to dub confirm that on the palate yeah. just to see what that is, whether it's temperature damage or whether it's been um, it's oxidized. Yeah, open too long. Um, something's not right or it could very well be um fine on the palate like ex expressing no faults on the palate it could just be that particular brewery style yeah um it would i'd definitely put a question mark next mm. to it if it was something like a, a maybe a an aged Junmai mm -hmm. Ginjo, mm -hmm. i might be expecting that and it was mm. labeled as such i might be expecting that mm. You do get it in like, you know, just on a very kind of um, just faint sort of baked uh, fruit aromas. And sometimes it can actually be your own sense of smell as well. You, you're picking what you think of is baked banana, but actually it's something completely different. So, Sebastian. Well, I mean, uh, make a slightly different answer. But yeah, the for me, the answer is the baked fruit aroma comes from as the same origin as the other aromas. It's, yeah. it's just a... a an, an organic or a, a chemical compound uh, of, of sake. Yeah. That's, uh, so um, and maybe the point I want to make here is what we were talking about earlier, um, the difference between the 
primary and secondary aromas, mm -hmm. which is a discussion that people often have about wine yeah. and that we almost do not have about sake. Uh, my uh, understanding is that sake is mostly made of, or, or the aromas of sake are mostly secondary or tertiary aromas, and that there are very, very few primary aromas in sake. Yeah, because nothing actually comes kind of naturally, really, from the rice. What you're getting from the rice is maybe rice, right? There aren't really any other aromas that rice can produce um, on, on its own, right? And that's the big difference between rice and grapes, isn't it? And honestly, I don't have the answer to that question. I don't no. know if the ricey aromas or the, the, that we get from the sake are primary aromas sometimes or uh, secondary aromas as well, i.e. coming from the yeast uh, walking its way through the morning. For, I just put in here that if you do pick up any kind of like non-fresh fruit aromas, what I mean by that, you know like when you leave a kind of glass of orange juice out for too long, the kind of smell that you get from that after a few hours, you can sometimes pick that up. It's like that's normally a sign, I think, of, of oxidation. Um, cereal aromas, are, I think, generally come from the proteins on the rice when they're actually dissolved into the uh, marami, into the fermentation. Um, I don't think starch on its own can actually create aroma. So it's, it's kind of uh, when it's broken down, uh, that's when that actually happens, basically imparting aromas into the fermentation. Uh, floral and spice, um, although you can also get floral with um, esters as well. Floral and spice can actually be alcohol or uh, aldehyde. Uh, too much of this in sake is generally a bad thing. Um, especially if you get this kind of like be spicy beer aromas, that can be a sign that something's not quite right. Wood, woody, kind of grassy green aromas, um, I think is generally a product of something called acetyl aldehyde. Uh, if you get it in too high levels, you end up with uh, volatile acidity. Um, and what well, could be also be actually, um, if, if it's a woody aroma, it could actually, it could be a fault. Uh, as in they've been using some like wooden tools in the brewing and that's the, the aromas from the tools have actually um, been accidentally imparted into the sake. Or it could be purposeful. They could have actually stored the sake um, in a wooden vessel. Like um, uh, they have a type of sake called uh, taruzake, where the sake is stored in cedar. Um, this is a very kind of traditional type of sake used in celebrations. Um, that could, that will have a very kind of woody aroma, but that's Most purposeful. often than not, I find that when you get a, um, a green woody note, it's usually because the first thing I'll ask a brewer is, have you changed anything in the Portimura recently? Yeah. So it could be that they've... Um, um, relined the koji muro or the, the koji making room yeah. with um, new wood. Um, sometimes it could, there will be that, that woody, I, I describe it as like a um, like an onsen or a, um, like a Japanese onsen bath mm. kind of aroma. Um, and sometimes it can even be one brewery had it, um, that note on the nose which was uncharacteristic for the brewer, and I said, has anything happened in the Kojimura? And they said, oh, yeah, we, we brought in a new table. So just <laughs> one table had been brought in, and it had imparted a really um, distinct um, like aroma right. um, on that batch, and the next three years of their sake had that very um, green woody note. Yeah, takes about three years for it to settle down. Okay. Rebecca, when you mentioned the, the, the smell of the bass, you didn't mean the water. You mentioned the bathtub, is that right? The bathtub. Yes. But basically, when you walk in to the, to the bathroom, it's warm 
and the aroma is sort of uh, it's also got a, a sort of a moist, a moist, a moist oh, okay. kind so of okay. moldy almost maybe. Um, it's it's moist. Moist. Okay. It's if anyone's ever walked into a non-seam, you know, it's a oh, it's, it's not a it's not a dry. Mm. Um, for me, it's often not a dry green woodiness. It's a kind of a a moist, damp woodiness. Okay. I would say generally not not a positive thing to pick up on on a sake, but you know. It um, it can be compelling. Depend, it depends yeah. what floats your boat. How they use it, how they yeah. kind of uh, work it into the overall sake itself. Um, next one, uh, soy sauce or kind of caramel aromas. Uh, normally, uh, unless anyone wants to interject and say otherwise, I think this is a product of the actual aging uh, of the sake. It's going through something called the Maillard reaction. Uh, kind of amino acids are breaking down, sugars are breaking down, and you get this thing called, I don't think it's an ester, I think it's a lactone called sotolon, and it kind of smells like caramel or soy sauce or honey. In nice situations, honey. Um, and also as well, you've got umami as well, I think, as well in there. Um, actually, th there's the question of whether umami is actually an aroma or a taste, a flavor or a taste, and I think, it, I think it'd be both. We had this discussion a little bit in the Riedel uh interview which well, is episode umami 19 is and 20. savory something can smell savory right right so i would consider but then again you could describe savory in much more detail you could um yeah. savory is a kind of all-encompassing general word yeah. but i could probably break it down into it smells like marmite on toast or miso or definitely something, yeah marmite. so perhaps it's more of like a a an all-encompassing word yeah. to describe aroma group. Yeah, and just like Marmite, you either kind of you love it or you hate it, don't you, when it comes to these kind of... What do you uh, think, Sebastian? Yeah, what do you think, Sebastian? Mm. I don't eat a lot of them on Marmite. Oh, no? <laughs> um, but actually, I do like the smell. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. I mean, for me, umami is uh, an excitement of uh, my senses yep. and uh, it makes me salivate mm. um, so i can definitely think um, i i would say that mm. umami has a smell yeah definitely okay so soy sauce and caramel that's where you get those from if you're ever ever wondering vinegar um i think generally that's that's not a positive thing basically if your sake is turned to vinegar which, which is you know these days it's not going to happen so often because of the high alcohol levels but basically you, it's a reaction between bad bacteria and, and a set uh basically um producing acetic acid i find i experience it most in sparkling wine uh, sake actually oh really yeah um that's because of bacterial problem with that sparkling sake okay. basically but um especially because some sparkling sake is very sweet Ah, um, okay. And mm. there can be some kind of secondary fermentation, and on, yeah. um, before long, you've got a sake vinaigrette. That's right. So if you, when the sake is stable, you, you know it's not going to keep fermenting. Nothing's really going to change in there. But if it keeps fermenting, then you could possibly have production of uh, other kind of things in there, which produces this acetic acid. Um, Japanese pickles. That's another. Quite a lot of these are negative, actually. Once you actually realize, but um, Japanese pickles. This is kind of another one of those you either like them or you hate them type thing. Yeah, yeah. I do remember being told by someone that when I experienced a sake that had DTMS or hineka or yeah. um, a off-aromid sake, 
that that was what real sake smelt like. And basically, it was someone who was had a very strong opinion about the sake that they liked and okay. tried to tell me that, well, good sake smells like this. And I, my response was, well, this sake smells like this, but I, I don't really believe in good and bad sake. Yeah. So this sake smells like this, and I'll just leave it at that. But I do think that sometimes I ha- well I have heard, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. I hmm. have heard people who are particularly passionate about a particular style of sake being quite down on the pretty floral um, aromas that are in some sake because it's seen as maybe not being real. Hmm. Um, true pure sake um i believe that all sake is genuinely real and pure mm. um given the way that it's it's produced and the um precision and the quality and the care with which sake is made i think that there is a huge spectrum of aromas as i said before and everyone has got a place that they vibe on mm. so if someone enjoys the more rustic aroma of uh, hinekasake or a namahine, like I told you before, yep, I used to yep. really enjoy namahine. Then that's yeah, that's I, fabulous. I don't like to get into this thing of like there are good and bad aromas too much. That's fair, very fair. But I, I think know. it's important to understand what the aromas are. Definitely. So it's to, it is important, I think, to say that generally here in Japan, the the pickle aroma is tends to be picked up quite negatively. And this is one reason why generally namazake is not kind of um, aged because that you have this DMTS and it just Well, doesn't... you know, I think that a lot of people think that is what namazake smells uh, actually like. smells like, yeah, yeah. And especially outside of Japan, I it, think. Well, yeah. I mean, because I've, I've actually never had a namazake that was in good condition on the nose overseas. There was some level of oxidization creeping in. Right. Or some kind of accelerated aging yeah. um, notes. And that's just because it's the time it's taken for it to actually... The time it's taken to export it, the temperature with which it was exported, and various other little black holes of temperature control um, or lack thereof yeah. that mean that that sake has... It's like the sake has been in the sun without sunscreen for a long time. Okay. You know? oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go. Japanese pickles in namazake, not necessarily a desirable thing. Um the musty smell that you sometimes get from sake can be, again, well, we've already talked about this with the koji just a second ago, so that, that's what that is. Um, but you do also get really pleasant aromas from the koji. Um, now, people pick this up differently. I always pick it up as kind of like a, a chestnut uh, aroma, um, but it's, uh, it comes from uh, the tokomomi uh, stage, one of the first stages of the koji making process. Um, we kind of spread the rice out to encourage the mold growth. And so you get this really nice chestnut aroma. And anyone who's actually visited a brewery and gone into the koji room um, will have maybe picked up this aroma. Um, you get a lot of chestnut in namazake, actually, um, for, for some reason. Um, it can be quite strong. Yogurt and cheese. We love this one because, you know, we're all, this is all about the, um, the yeast starter stage of the sake making process. And it's generally produced by lactic acid bacteria. No surprise there when you think how yogurt uh, and, and essentially dairy products are made. Um, funky aromas, uh, mushroom, cloves, meat, what you would maybe refer to as uh, tertiary aromas in the case of wine. 
um, are generally produced by the wild bacteria in the Yamahai process. Problem here is we've not actually talked about what the Yamahai process is in any of our uh, previous episodes. Um, basically, it's producing... So the yeast starter is where you're actually growing uh, the yeast into a healthy population that can kind of defend itself against other wild bacteria and actually obviously drive the fermentation. And um, because the tank is open in the case of sake, you will have wild bacteria trying to come in and, and spoil the party. And the Kimoto and Yamahai process is basically you protect the yeast while it's growing using uh, natural bacteria. Basically, this lactic acid bacteria can produce these kind of yogurt or cheese aromas and also uh, quite funky aromas as well. Because um, in the Yamahai process, the wild bacteria does actually get into the tank and you leave it there just long enough for it to produce these kind of funky aromas, which, you know, are not, not to everyone's taste, but some people do like them. Um, it happened that I had a, a sake last night, yeah. which had a very, very strong butter uh, aroma. Okay. Um, like a very natural way of making sake by yeah. one of the um, famous uh, Chiba brewers. Okay. And I believe in that case, the aromas were coming from the main fermentation as well. Okay. Um, but it can be, I mean, these lactic aromas, I, I definitely agree with you, often come from that the, yeast the starter, yeast but they can get really, really strong and take us to bitter and yeah. to butter. So Butter is great. But actually, butter can sometimes be uh, diacetyl, which can be something a little bit nastier. Some Maybe yes. something's gone wrong in the fermentation. But butter is good in sake in general. And that's kind of it, really, I think, isn't it? I mean, sometimes you get some ready aromas, which come from the yeast when, you, when you've left uh, sort of the fine lees in the sake. Um, especially, I think, with sparkling sake, just like with champagne, you get quite ready aromas. Um, there are some of the negative aromas, which it might be worth to talk about, uh, when you've had some kind of light damage. So generally when, you know, the, the sake should be kept away from sunlight and UV light. Um, but if it has come into contact with either of those, you might get a kind of burnt hair or animal kind of aroma, uh, which isn't particularly pleasant. And if you ever pick up egg, sulfury aromas in the sake, that's definitely not a good sign. That's normally something called hiyochi, a bacteria called hiyochi, which is completely um, spoiled to sake. But that's rare um, these days. You mentioned animal, and it actually yeah. reminds me um, that I wanted to, when you were talking about Yamahai, yeah. uh, talk of the like gamey profile, oh, gamey right. aroma yeah, yeah. profile yeah. of some of the Yamahai sake. And yeah. then clearly it's not an effect. It's, uh, I enjoy it quite a lot. Mm. Um, this uh, subtle leather or... Uh, mm game aroma yeah and that basically comes from that wild bacteria and it's very rare but we sometimes get defects from the packaging itself so yeah so plastic for example mm -hmm. may come from the packaging mm -hmm. of the of the sake um, which can be mentioned as well yeah So, uh, sadly, Rebecca has had to uh, leave us, um, go off to a sake event and go and entertain uh, some people and uh, you know, bring them into the world of sake. But uh, we'll continue this discussion, right, Sebastian? That's right. Okay. So, uh, I guess one other thing uh, that we should talk about that maybe our listeners are wondering was one of the first things I, I wondered, actually, when I first tasted sake, did it always taste like this? So, historically, how has sake changed? What would sake have smelled like a thousand years ago, 500 years ago? 
Um, Sebastian, do you have any ideas? Uh, what do you? How do you think it would have? Uh, so what's your kind of? How do you imagine sake smelling thousand years ago, five hundred years ago? For most people who enter the sake world today, these fruity aromas we were talking about earlier, this so-called ginjoka, is sort of, a, I mean, a given or something they're looking for. But for a number of reasons, they were not uh, in sake uh, five hundred years ago. That's right, um, because they are the result of very specific. A brewing process yeah so how did it smell like well <laughs> well i actually found um a kind of uh, a tasting notes for a sake which a brewery made based on an old edo period so that's sort of like 18 uh, 17th to 18th century uh basically this brewery created a sake based on an old edo period recipe and they described well the person who was actually uh, writing the tasting notes described this sake as smelling like soy sauce Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like to try? <laughs> well, you know, actually, I, I can understand that because um, I did a bit of research. And first of all, in the Edo period, so this is kind of slightly pre... This is the period where they started to brew using the three-stage fermentation process. Um, they started to use pasteurization on a large scale. Um, and they started brewing sake in the winter as well, in the colder months, because originally sake was being brewed all year round. And... The actual only reason they changed that is because the government told them to. I think that's my understanding. But anyway, so basically, uh, my understanding of this research kind of suggests that, uh, first of all, they were putting ash in the sake. There's something called akumochizake. Okay, so they were putting ash in the fermentation. And it says that by putting ash in the fermentation, it actually gave the sake a very, um, an aroma that reminds you of mirin or a mirin-esque aroma. Um, and with regards to the soy sauce, I think probably my guess would be that it's because the sake was aging. Yeah, yeah not I mean, being stored like it is today with refrigerated storage, maybe. I would think, I would think so as well. I mean, yeah. because this uh, aroma of soy sauce would pick up from, from aged sake a lot. So we were this, talking about yes, earlier, right? Third, well, tertiary aroma. Exactly. Like yeah. And you know, they used to actually water the sake down because you couldn't drink it. It was, it was, that rich and the aroma was that strong it was yeah, i mean can you imagine trying to drink soy sauce not particularly pleasant so what they were doing is i don't, I don't think it was the brewers but the shops were actually watering the sake down that would take the alcohol level down to around five percent so then you would have something that's a bit like a beer almost mm. and then the problem with the lack of alcohol is that you it's then vulnerable to acetic acid uh, production of acetic acid or basically just you know going bad um so i don't have a very positive image of sake back in the Edo period. Um, I hope that's wrong, but um, I think probably that was the case. And if we look at pre-war versus post-war, I think the sake, there's a period after the war where the aroma of sake got quite bad because they were adding lots of different things to the sake to basically so that they could sell the volume required because they had a lack of rice, so they couldn't actually produce the volume. And I mean, I don't know what they were adding, but they were adding all sorts of things like extra alcohol, uh, sweetening agents, whatever. And, and apparently, I think this created quite a bad aroma. You're mentioning sort of bad things here or yeah. things that have a bad reputation today. That's right. Um, but a very important point is that, um, in fact, while the yeast the yeast is producing most of the aromas, as we said. That's right. Uh, so at the end of the fermentation period, the the tanks the sake in yeah. the tank has 
a number of uh, esters that will create these aromas. Yeah. And still, the brewer has means to uh, play with that aromatic profile yeah. and that bouquet of the sake and by adding at least one or two things or two things. Yeah. Uh, alcohol, yeah, distilled could alcohol. They could add alcohol, yeah. Which will stabilize the mash and fix some of these uh, esters and, and aromas. That's right. And the other thing is water. Because as you add water to the mash, so you're watering down the sake contained yeah. in the tank, you are changing the concentration right. of, the, of the molecules that make these esters. So okay. you might bring certain aromas below yeah. your, your perception level. Yeah. Um, so that's a way to so, refine the aromatic process. So in other that. words, this watering down that they were doing early on may actually have been diluting potential esters that were there. So perhaps esters already existed in sake. They were always there. It's just that the brewing process wasn't designed to enhance them or bring them out. They were almost being snubbed out, if you like, during the fermentation. We go back to the Edo period. Especially in kind of like the Kansai area um, of uh, Japan, in the south of Japan, um, in a lot of places, they were actually using hard water to uh, brew the sake, which is very high in mineral content, which drives the fermentation. So you get a very fast fermentation, you get a very aggressive fermentation, you get a very aggressive breakdown of starch to sugar and then sugar to alcohol. Um, but in Hiroshima, they actually have soft water. And the problem that they had was um, because the soft water doesn't contain many minerals, you still had quite um, a fast breakdown of starch to sugar. You still had quite a fast enzymatic reaction between... I mean, if you were brewing at high temperatures, right? So let's assume that they were brewing at around, say, 18 degrees or, or something like that. You get a very fast breakdown. Um, well, it would be a normal breakdown of starch to sugar. But the yeast is not able to keep up with that breakdown. So what you end up with is a lot of sugar in the fermentation, which produces a lot of acidity, a lot of volatile acidity, and it can, in some cases, actually end up with a spoiled batch, something called fuzo in Japanese. And this was a big problem in Hiroshima. Um, and they were brewing in quite warm temperatures. Well, I mean, it's quite warm in Hiroshima if you compare it with, say, Niigata or, or somewhere like that. Um, brewers in Hiroshima had to devise um, a process whereby they could produce sake with low mineral soft water. Um, and basically what they, they did was they lowered the uh, temperature of the fermentation. But by doing that, they actually produced an environment that was very difficult for the yeast to survive. And when the yeast has to work harder to survive, um, it produces these higher alcohols, which are the precursors for the esters that we talked about mm -hmm. earlier. Um, so this is where the Ginjo process came from. So we're essentially we're talking about the Ginjo process. So Ginjo actually started off being called Ginzo. Uh, Ginjo does not, in Japanese, does not, the, the meaning of the word Ginjo does not have anything to do with fruity or floral aromas. Ginjo literally means precision brewing. That's how you would translate it. Um, so the original word Ginzo literally means precision brewing. And then in 1984, uh, a brewery in Niigata just decided to, I don't know why, but decided to start using the word Ginjo and then it stopped basically. And that's the history of the word Ginjo. So Yamada Nishiki doesn't come along uh, much later, until much later, but the development of rice to actually aid with the production of these uh, esters, with these Ginjo aromas, is definitely key as well. 
uh, I think if I want to to take it to the simplest level, yeah, is uh, one characteristic of the Ginger method beyond the the temperature control is the polishing of the rice. That's right, and um, we can establish some rough correlation yeah. between the level of fruity aromas yeah. and the polishing ratio of the rice. That's exactly correct. The outside layers of the rice contain fats and lipids, which actually inhibit the creation of esters. Um, and what about the koji as well? So when, when we actually produce ginger, one key um, part of the process is actually making a koji with less mold growth. So basically less enzymes are going to be imparted in the fermentation. And again, that means that there's going to be a slower breakdown of starch to sugar and there's going to be less nutrients for the yeast. A ginjo uh, has only been around for the last, I don't know, 80 years, maybe uh, less than that. And uh, pretty much when we got the uh, vertical polishing machines to polish the rice, before we had those, we couldn't polish the rice down to sufficient enough levels to be able to... Um, actually carry pull off this this ginjo production process i think ginjo has become a main become mainstream for a uh, in, in a much more recent past yes and that goes in tandem with the preferences of, of consumers and the efforts of, of producers of brewers yeah to create new products for a market that has been declining yeah and it goes in tandem as well with the development of uh, of new, the identification or the, the cultivation of, of new yeast. Yes. Doesn't ah, it? And that's where we need to go next, right? Traditionally, brewers were just basically using wild yeast. Sometimes they would produce really good results. You would get nice aromas from them. But it wasn't consistent. You couldn't produce that result the next year because the yeast is, you know, it's, you have to isolate that part, the, the, that particular yeast strain to be able to produce that again. Um, so the Society of Brewing in Japan, uh, they created the, uh, basically a proprietary yeast called a kyokai kobo. And it's what most brewers use today to brew sake. So basically they come in these little ampules. Uh, you only need a small ampule to actually brew, um, you know, a batch of sake. Um, I would like to briefly just talk about the evolution uh, of these kyokai kobos. So they, they go all the way back to uh, the 1900s. That's when kind of the first uh, kyokai kobo were created. And basically what happened, so you would have like a sake competition and one of the scientists from this society would go along and often judge or maybe taste the sake. And whenever they came across a particular aroma that they found interesting, they would go and investigate the brewery that created this aroma and then they would perhaps be able to isolate the yeast in that brewery. And that's how these proprietary yeast came about. So a lot of the proprietary yeast that are used today, um, the Kyokai Kobo that are used today, were actually discovered in particular sake breweries. So to give you an example, um, number six was discovered in Aramasa, in Akita Prefecture. And number seven, which is arguably the standard used by nearly all breweries in Japan um, because it produces such consistent results and a nice aroma as well, was discovered uh, at Masumi, Miyasaka Jozo, in Nagano, in Suwa in Nagano. And you can refer to our interview. Yeah, of, uh, we had an interview yeah. with uh, Masumi where they talked about the number seven yeast. We actually talked about that. Um, number seven is, it's just it just keeps working. It just keeps brewing. No matter what you do, no matter what happens to the environment in the fermentation, you can rely on it 
to just keep fermenting away. And it produces these amazing aromas as well. You get banana, um, apple, things like that. Now, the first kind of stage, if we see stage one of the Kyokai Kobo, which were developed between 1900 and 1945, really just focused on consistency and reliability. They weren't really concerned too much about aroma. Then, in between 1960 and 1980, in stage two, the demand for uh, yeast that produced these higher alcohols, the precursors for esters, um, grew because of competition, basically. Uh, I don't think there was any other reason apart from competitions. And then we have the um, creation or the discovery of number nine and number 10, which I think are arguably the most important yeast during this period. Number nine was discovered by Koro in Kumamoto uh, Prefecture. Uh, discovered at Koro and then think, I think developed at the Kumamoto Research uh, Institute. And number 10 was discovered at Meiri uh, Shuzo in Ibaraki. Very similar, actually, aren't they? They both produce a very strong kind of tropical yeah. fruits aroma, mm -hmm. candied fruits aroma. They, they are definitely responsible for most of the ginjos and daiginjos yeah. that we see in the market today. Do, do you like number 9 and number 10? Because it can be quite divisive, can't they? Um, among the <laughs> among the tasting population, right? I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, I certainly like some of the sakes that they they're, they're producing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. um, I I enjoy these these fruity aromas. And stage three, um, much more recently, from the, about the nineties to the present day, the focus has been on reducing the acidity because the acidity is quite high of like number nine and number ten. So the, the focus has been on reducing the acidity, I assume, so that the aromas can kind of show themselves um, a bit more. One problem that you have with these later yeast, uh, which uh, we're talking about numbers 1601, 1801, 1901, for example, they tend to produce quite a strong bitterness, I find. Can you relate to that? Yeah. Uh, w what I uh, relate to is or was the necessity to work on the yeast and and try maybe other things because some in my personal experience some of the daiginjos that you may find on the market you open the bottle on day one and you enjoy this beautiful fruity thing and you put it in the fridge and the following morning uh, well a number of aromas are gone sometimes most of the aromas are gone right. and you're left with something which is just quite uh, acidic yeah um, and so uh, these some of these daiginjos are, um, how can I describe them? Are a fragile. very difficult, fragile, yeah. they're a difficult uh, exercise uh, yeah. trying to keep balance between yeah. uh, the sweetness that will uh, limit this, uh, this uh, bitter taste yeah. of, the, uh, of the acids yeah. or, or alcohol and these aromatic esters that are present in the sake. And, and I think some breweries have started to actually blend the later yeast with the, the stage two yeast, number nine and number 10, um, to kind of balance out that bitterness. So you were talking about having to store the daiginjo or ginjo very, you know, they're very fragile, have to store them carefully. I have to point out, I think a lot of people would be tempted to use the vacuum um, suckers, you know, the, what do you call the, the vacuum um, seal yeah, that's a good point, pumps. Yeah. Don't use them for ginjo and daiginjo because what you'll actually be doing is sucking out the alcohol, the higher alcohols, and just leaving this caproic acid behind, which is not the nice part of the um, ethyl caproate ester. It's it's almost kind of like goat, goat, 
fur, goatish. <laughs> you know, you know it, it's quite animal-y, isn't it? It can be almost like a damp dishcloth in some cases. So, yeah. Also, as well, don't leave the top off your di- you know, your bottle of ginger or daiginjo because then the it will evaporate. The the higher alcohols will evaporate and just leave you with this. I mean, many of them may still may still be perfectly drinkable. But yeah, we're just we're we'll, we'll sometimes losing the the magic of the first That's right. moment. That's right. So okay, we're coming towards the end of the show. Um, like we said right at the beginning, I mean, sake doesn't have as much aroma uh, as wine, really. I mean, it still has quite a large spectrum of aroma, but they're much more subtle, much more difficult to kind of detect. Um, I mean, with wine, it's a, a massive thing, aroma. Um, could we say the same thing about sake? And, and, you know, what are the demerits and merits of putting aroma in sake? Sebastian? I mean, d- developing the aromatic dimension of sake uh, is... Uh I mean, has brought, has contributed to this great diversity of products that we see in the market. So um, I think that uh, aromas are a differentiation method, uh, a way for producers to differentiate themselves in this market. So that's uh, a definite merit for them and a different merit for the consumer. Mm. Um, But another... um, what is good about uh, aromas is, as uh, Rebecca was saying earlier, yeah. it's uh, it's it's a promise. So, it's um, the beginning of 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 the enjoyment mm. of the of the sake of the drink. Mm. It's the the window dressing, isn't it? The window dressing. Yeah, before you walk into the the shop and you you actually enjoy the sake. Um, I I would say um, perhaps a merit and a demerit is when it comes to pairing with food, having aroma. You know, like with wine, sometimes if you have aromas of a particular, say, for example, banana, apple or spice or herbs or things like that, when it comes to pairing with the food, you can actually look for food which has similar uh, flavors in it. And then, you know, you will create kind of like a congruent pairing or a complementary pairing. The, the demerit there is that aroma can actually restrict the food pairing. You're, you're really not going to have many good results trying to pair a very very strong daiginjo or ginjo with sushi sashimi for example right it's not you're not going to be able to enjoy the freshness of the fish agreed with exception and um, this is a a very good point and we were mentioning earlier about uh, the number of uh, sake references where you have a a low level of of aromas which um, make me i mean which again is related to the fact that uh, these sakes are not necessarily not as good, yeah. but they were just they are just built or uh, thought of yeah. to to be maybe better pairings or, or more versatile pairing for for yeah. a diverse range of uh, of foods. Yeah, and it's definitely uh, a lot of it is influ- a lot of like the the increase in aroma um, in kind of modern times is definitely influenced by the food pairing as well i think the food that you're pairing with and also there's been a lot of influence from the wine world as well i think we don't want to say too much because we already had this ginger aroma going back before you know brewers started dabbling in the wine world but there's definitely some influence there i think um well to sum up i think you know um aroma can be a big part of the tasting experience of discovering sake maybe for some people it's more about the aroma than it is the what you actually taste on the tongue but go out there like rebecca said you, you know, just explore and what you can actually pick up on the nose, go with it. Just write down what you get. Uh, make these 
stories you know if you could if it reminds you of a particular memory as aroma quite often can do um, from your childhood for example go with that you know um, put that in your tasting notes and uh, we'll definitely come back to this topic in future podcasts because we definitely haven't nailed it in this one i don't think but today that's what we'll leave you with actually chris before before we end because we started describing the beautiful aromas of a ginjo or a daginjo sake um, i just don't want to leave our listeners with the idea that a sake that does not have these aromas or does not show these aromas when we when you first pick up the glass is not as good or has, has nothing to offer um, because um, you, we discussed it a little but in, in the history of sake uh, sake has not always been uh, aromatic and um, it I don't think sake necessarily has to kind of shout at you to make itself heard no, that's, right? a, that's a good way of saying yeah. it it's almost kind of it can whisper to you Right, and it can still be whispering something very magical. You just have to kind of strain your ears, maybe, to to hear it. Actually, when I first started tasting sake, I think there were a lot of sake I kind of just put to one side and thought, "Nah, this doesn't, you know, it's boring." Almost, you know, just from that first one, that one impression. But now, when I come across those really restrained aromatic sake, I, I actually do really appreciate them, especially when it's all balanced nicely with the rest of the profile. Hopefully, although I think we've only really touched the surface of um, when it comes to aroma, um, but hopefully we've kind of provided the foundation to talk about this again in future episodes. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Sebastian. Lovely Thank you to very talk much with to you. you and um, to share um, a little bit of information with you all. Fairly broad subject, but um, get in touch with us if you have any further questions, if uh, you wanted to point out something or share your thoughts or ideas or even have an amazing um, sake aroma story that you want to share with us we'd love to hear from you thank you much and i'm looking forward to seeing you sniffing in the supermarket as uh, rebecca was <laughs> <laughs> was hinting at the best method to train uh, one's nose and yeah. yeah i mean you're doing a great job as sake judge so i guess you uh, went through that yep yeah. i made people stop and stare and um, question why that crazy foreign girl had her face in the grapes um do it um be embarrassed but be polite and pay for things if I you, just, if I you just touch them you through a supermarket <laughs> and i've got you with a an, in a style kind of rocky style montage with the rocky music behind and you're kind of your training <laughs> face for the judging i'm not sure if it was, <laughs> if it was that intense but anyway <laughs> thanks very much rebecca uh, sebastian and as always we'll continue to bring you uh, more interesting stories from the world of sake, more insight, and generally just uh, try and make this sometimes quite complicated beverage a little bit more accessible and understandable. And that's the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening. Sake on Air is made with the generous support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and is broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in Tokyo. The show is a co-production between Export Japan and Patsuke Productions. If you feel like Sake on Air contributed something to your enjoyment of sake and shochu this past year, please take a moment to rate and review us on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts. If you want to give back to the Sake on Air team, that's really the best way to do it. Also, please keep sending us your questions and comments about the show. You can send them to questions at sakeonair.com, or you can DM us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Sakeonair. Happy New Year, everyone! Kanpai!